The scripture reading for this morning is from John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, family. Good morning. Really good to see you here this morning. Thank you for making the choice uh, to be with us today. I really appreciate that. It's an encouragement to me, and uh, I pray that you will be encouraged um, because you chose to be here as we rehearse the gospel together through singing and through the sermon, and then as we participate in the sacraments as well, uh, following, following the sermon. Let's pray, and uh, man, we sang about being kids who need 
just need, right? We're needy kids. So let's actually pray and acknowledge that to our dad and posture ourselves, posture ourselves uh, before him to receive. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who have <clears throat> been adopted into your family and rescued from our rebellion, we approach you as our good father. We know you're generous and we know you're rich, uh, which is good because we, apart from you, are poor and we're needy. And so, Father, we just we want to humbly posture ourselves before you, um, expecting to receive from you because we know that you love to give good gifts to your kids. And we know the greatest gift that you give is your presence. And so we pray that your presence would be unmistakably known in life-giving ways this morning. Jesus, we thank you for descending, pursuing for our rescue. Uh, may you be the hero of our time together today. Uh, you are our older brother, but just as importantly, our rescuing king, perfect in our place. And Spirit, we acknowledge too that we didn't make ourselves come alive. We didn't manage to get ourselves adopted. You woke our hearts up and gave us the gift of faith, and we need that gift from you again this morning. So please open our ears to hear our Father's voice. Open our eyes to see Jesus, our rescuing King, and give us a humble posture so that we can receive words of life from our dad again this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we continue to press into our series in John. And as you know, our theme throughout the series is Jesus is life. And last week, I said Jesus is, and you said, all right, so let's personalize it this week with a little more enthusiasm. <laughs> Jesus is um, our life. It's not just that he is life or a life, but he is actually our life. Jesus is? All right, there we go. We have like 20 more weeks in the series, so we'll kill it before we're all done. <laughs> Jesus is life. Uh, the big idea from the passage this morning is right here. My rebellion is so deep. It takes the full force of the Trinity to perform my rescue. My rebellion's so deep, no half measure, um, no outward conformity or reformation. Like I need every member of the Trinity to bring all of their power and all of their work to bear for my good. That's how deep my rebellion runs. I'm powerless. I'm completely at the mercy of God. Have you ever had an experience that reminded you of your powerlessness or that you existed at the mercy of God or other people? Uh, we recently had one. You know that my family and I took a short, well, a two and a half month trip to the States. I guess it wasn't that short. This summer. And um, we were in Philly with family before we were getting ready to leave. That's where we got all of our COVID testing done. The next day we drove to D.C., the next morning, we flew out of D.C. and we landed in L.A. And it was in LAX that we were going to board our international flight to Tokyo. So I confidently walk up to the counter um, in, in an abandoned LAX international terminal. Hardly anybody there. In fact, it was so abandoned, they weren't even opening the restaurants at normal mealtimes. It was lunchtime and nothing was open. It was, it was crazy. But I confidently stroll up to the JAL counter, and I love, I don't care, ANA, JAL, I just, I love strolling up to those counters. But I went with confidence because I sat for 45 minutes in the doctor's office reviewing these forms, and I knew we were locked on and good to go. So I set them down. Uh, the kind lady behind the desk starts reviewing our papers. She scans mine, check, good to go, slides it to the side. Scans Linnea's, check, good to go, slides it to the side. Same for Emma, we're going in birth order. 
Uh, she gets Johnny's papers out. I walk away from the desk now that confident, like we're good. Scans Johnny's papers, good to go, no problem, check. She puts Owen's papers down in front of her and she reads and she reads again and she reads again. And you know that feeling like the pit in your stomach? That, that's when it just started to sit heavy right there. And she calls me over. She's like, Mr. Ransom, there's a, there's a problem in your paperwork. I'm like, what's that? I, I really had gone through these things with a fine-tooth comb. She said, uh, the box that needs to be checked, indicating that Owen had a negative test, has not been checked. That's it. And the whole, and the whole thing. She's like, I can't put you on the plane. Cannot go back to Tokyo. In that moment, the full weight of my powerlessness to get on that plane landed on me. A little bit of despair. Um, I was completely at the mercy of those gate agents and just the Japanese system that's in place. We weren't going anywhere. That's the sense that we get when we see today's big idea. My rebellion is so deep. I, I, I am powerless. I, I'm depending on the mercy of God, and I need him to bring the full weight of every member of the Trinity to perform my rescue. The way that that big idea will unfold in the text is, is right here. First, we're going to encounter the work of the Spirit. And what we're going to see is that the Spirit delivers. He delivers rebels from death to life. The next um, work that we'll see, John will pivot a little bit and we'll roll into the work of the Son. And we'll see that the Son descends, rescuing rebels from hell to heaven. And then we'll pivot one more time and we'll see the work of the third member of the Trinity, our Father. And the Father draws. He draws rebels from darkness into the warmth of His light. So we're going to see each member of the Trinity and the work that they do to perform our rescue because our rebellion runs so deep. Now, I'm a simple guy, so if that's too wordy, just go with the Spirit delivers, the Son descends, and um, the Father draws. But I'm even simpler than that. So I boil things all the way down, and here's how I remember the passage. New crib, new kingdom, no condemnation. And just a little clarity on the crib thing. Like, I'm not talking about a house. I'm talking about a baby crib, right? Because this whole passage is about being born again, right? But we just need to get this image right from the get-go. It's not like spiritually we're in one crib and we just need to get into a better one or a different one. Guys, the gospel is super clear. In our rebellion, there is a spiritual death or deadness. So I'm not chilling in another crib just waiting for a better one from the Holy Spirit. It might be better to say the Holy Spirit delivers from crypt to crib, if you just need words to help you remember. Like, I'm not in a crib. I am in a crypt. I'm dead. And the Holy Spirit delivers me into a new crib and gives me life. Okay, so new crib, new kingdom, no condemnation. I misspelled that, and I'm sorry. It's no condemnation. Okay, so don't condemn me for misspelling condemnation. So let's begin with the Spirit delivers. In John 3, we are introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And you see in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus by what? By night. So again, I'm a simple guy. I'm also a child of the 80s and the 90s. So the one way I remember this whole passage is, can you guess? No, I can't. Okay. Nick at night. Yeah? Nick at night. It works, right? Now you will never unhear that. So John 3, Nick at night. Nicodemus comes, and he comes at night. So a couple things. Nicodemus, Pharisee ruler of the, of the, and a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he has influence, and he has reputation. As a Pharisee, he would have known uh, by heart. He would have known the contents of the scrolls of Scripture, the Old Testament. He would have loved deeply the laws of God. He would have, 
he would have spent a career writing laws about the laws of God to make sure that lawbreakers like you and me wouldn't mess it all up, right? Like he knew God's word and he cared about God's law. He was a man of influence and authority. Maybe our modern day equivalent to that is what's, what's the one podcast preacher that you listen to regularly that you give authority and influence to? Like John Ransom says something whack in a sermon. You're like, there's no way that's right. And so you go pull up your boy, Matt Chandler, John Piper, the, other, the real Ask Pastor John, or whoever it is that you have in your, right? And you go check. That's kind of like Nicodemus right here. In other words, he's the best of the best is what I'm trying to say. Morally, he knows God's word. He's the best of the best. Authority and influence. Um, now notice what time of day he comes to Jesus. When? Nighttime. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. It's possible that he's just a busy guy. Uh, highly likely. We know Jesus has a lot going on and crowds gather. So maybe nighttime was the only time they could align their schedules and get together. Possible. Possible. More likely, the way John kind of weaves us through this narrative is that Nicodemus has something to guard, something to protect. He's, he's guarding his reputation. It can't be known that he's spending time with Jesus. I think that's the more likely understanding. But there's another fascinating piece to this. John's doing something very interesting with his language. So he's starting this narrative out at nighttime, darkness. Did you notice how he closes this narrative? Darkness, right? He's doing this on purpose to help us see something about our rebellion. Notice this in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because our works were evil, are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Nicodemus comes at night, and Nicodemus is, he's got his own reasons for coming at nighttime, but he stands symbolically as every one of us. We encounter Jesus in the nighttime of our souls, in the depth of our rebellion. Some of you, um, some of us even came to Jesus in a very guarded way, right? We had something to protect or guard against. Even now as Christians in a largely non-Christian context, some of us still tend to be like Nicodemus, like, I'll just spend my time with Jesus at nighttime, but during the day, just keep this low-key, right? Low-key, keep it on the, on the DL. But we're like Nicodemus. A rebellion runs really, really deep and really dark. And here's what we see. Nicodemus shows up, and notice he compliments Jesus, kind of. It sounds like a compliment. He says, Jesus, we know you're a teacher and you must be sent from God because nobody doing the signs that you're doing right now could be doing them unless God was empowering them. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't thank him for the compliment. He doesn't acknowledge that. He actually immediately pivots. And he, he's, he, he, he makes a statement about Nicodemus not being able to see the kingdom of God and not being able to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus is linking Nicodemus' inability to see God's kingdom with his inability to see Jesus for who he really is. And then he says, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom... In order to see who I really am, in order to enter the kingdom, what? What's he say? You have to be born again. Now, let this sit on us for a moment, because who is Nicodemus? The best of the best, right? In terms of Bible knowledge and love for God's law and faithfulness and doing all the religious things, going to church, all the things. Here's Nicodemus and here's us, right? Next weekend is what? It's a federal holiday, right? So a lot of us have plans to be away on a 96 or 72. Yeah, can we acknowledge that in church? Is that okay? 
I know like 10 of our families are at Okuma this weekend. Like one of our MCs went up there to get away because they're trying to beat the rush. But you're going, aren't you? Here's all I'm trying to say. Nicodemus never skipped church for a 96 or a 72. He used those opportunities to go to church twice. Where are you? All right, I'm just saying. Here's Nicodemus, best of the best. Here's the rest of us down here. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that to make fun of you. Here's what I'm trying to say, or me, because I'm just like you. We're all the same. I'm saying Jesus looked him in the eye, acknowledging who he was, and said, Nicodemus, you say you can see God's kingdom, but clearly you can't because you're just calling me a teacher. If you could really see God's kingdom, you would see me for who I am, your Messiah, your rescuing king, the son of God. You're just calling me a teacher? No, dog. You don't see the kingdom of God. And in order to, look, I'm not here to give you a life plan. I'm not your life coach. I'm not going to talk to you about changing churches, conformity on the outside, changing your clothes, changing, changing your moral code. None of these things. You're dead, Nicodemus. And the only way you're going to see me for who I am and see the kingdom of God is to be born again. You've got to be born again. Now, notice what Nicodemus does, though. See, I'm, I'm telling you, we have so much in common with Nicodemus, it's not even funny, except for the fact that he's way up here and the rest of us live life kind of at the average level. But here's where we have a ton in common. Notice what he does with Jesus' announcement that he's got to be born again. He makes it about what he has to do. How many of us do that with God's Word? Every day, we, we read the Bible, and we're like, all right, Dad, just, just tell me what I need to do today. Like, we approach that, um, God, I'm a sinner. Just tell me what I have to do to clean up and be forgiven and be accepted. You want me to change? I'll change. You want me to stay away from this? I'll stay away from this. You don't want me to do that? I won't do that. Just tell me what the rules are and the guidelines. I'll be a good son. And then we're in the family. We know we're supposed to have devotions. So we read the Bible and we're just reading. The lens we read through is, what do I not do to keep God happy? And what do I do to keep my dad happy? What do I do? Nicodemus, is this, he's us. Look at what he does. He turns the announcement that he's got to be born again into something that he does, right? Do you see how he responds? Like, Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about right now? So you're saying I need to find a way to crawl back into my mother's womb. Nasty. That's exactly what he's saying. Like, he's kind of making fun of what Jesus, you was right. He's just saying, Jesus, tell me what I need to do. Guys, that's us. And Jesus says, no, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That, is born, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But then you, we read that, guys, and we do the same exact thing that Nicodemus does, right? Because we see it and we're like, oh, born of the Spirit. But he said water. There's something I got to do. So throughout church history, here's the three major interpretations of water. And let me show you why the first two are anchored in a works approach to being right with God. The first one, water, people would take it as a, uh, a reference to anatomy either on the male side or the female side. Without going into detail, you can just imagine all that goes into the creation of a child. And so some would say, well, clearly water is an allusion to like physical birth, right? Maybe more common than that is that water means baptism. In fact, um, yeah, the Catholic Church would teach this, that in order to be born again and into the kingdom of God, you've got the Spirit's got to do something, but then I've got to participate in the sacrament or the rite of baptism as a way in. But the good news of the gospel is, no, that's, that's, that's not right. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing you can do. Baptism stands as a sign of the kingdom that you're, you're in the kingdom. It's not an entryway or a ticket 
into the kingdom. So Jesus says, uh, you've got to be born again by the water and the spirit. And, and Nicodemus is still struggling with his, he, he doesn't, he can't get his mind around it, which is tragic. It's tragic that we still do the same thing. Like, all right, I get it. God has a peace, but I, I got to have a peace. I got to do something to be right with God, right? But let me show you this. Here's a passage that Nicodemus should have known. In fact, Nicodemus would have preached sermons from this passage. It's Ezekiel 36. It'll be on the screen for you, beginning in verse 24. And Ezekiel's like this. I, or God says to his rebel kids, I'm going to take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, what does he say? Look at this. What's he going to do? Who's the water piece here? I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's the same, it's, he's talking about one new birth, not two separate actions that have to take place. God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water. You will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Baptism doesn't cleanse you. Baptism is a sign that points to the cleansing work of God's uh, redemptive work, right? I'm going to cleanse you from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Who does both pieces? God. Water and spirit. He's just talking about one new birth, and it's God that accomplishes that new birth. It's not a to-do list for Nicodemus. Jesus says, verse 7, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of who? Who does the delivering? The Spirit. Any doulas in the room? All right, good. Never mind. I'll stay away from the doula talk. Who does the delivering? The Spirit does the delivering. You don't birth yourself, Nicodemus. There's not something you do. And I love that he uses the imagery of wind. Can you summon the wind? Can you increase the wind's strength? Can you make the wind blow through the branches of the trees? Can you see the wind? No, we, only, we see the effects of the wind, right? This delivery from death to life, from crypt to new crib, is all the work of the Spirit. And guys, this is really good news for us, particularly for those of us who tend to be like Nicodemus. Because listen... If we turn this into what we have to do, you will never be able to do enough or do it perfectly enough. Your rebellion runs too deep. So this is God's kind promise to you that he sends the Spirit to deliver you from death to life. And with this analogy of the wind, look, you've run really hard and fast in your rebellion. Can you outrun the wind? No. You know what my favorite pastime was as a poor five-year-old barefoot boy in the fields of Vermont growing up? My brothers and I would go outside and after we were done playing with sticks and mud and rocks and all the other 1980 toys that boosted our immune system, we would look to the sky and we'd see the big puffy clouds and we would race the clouds, the shadows on the ground. You ever do that as a kid? The wind would blow, the shadows would start shifting, and it's like you knew if you got caught in the shadow you were dead, so you ran. Can a five-year-old outrun the cloud shadows on the ground? No. Guys, the really good news for us in our rebellion, we have run hard and we have run fast. We chase the shadows. You cannot outrun God's Spirit. When He goes to work to bring your heart to life, to move you from crypt to crib, you will come to life. 
You won't see the wind coming, but you will unmistakably feel the effects of the wind. Guys, this is beautiful news for us. Because religion preaches all these things that you've got to do. The Gospel says no. The doing is done by the Spirit who delivers. And He brings your heart to life as a gift. It's beautiful. Now, the conversation is going to pivot a little bit. Verse 9, Nicodemus still is struggling, right? He's still not liking it, not getting it. And so Nicodemus says to Jesus, Jesus, how can, these, how can this be? Like, I don't understand. And Jesus responds with a question of his own. He says, Nicodemus, man, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Like, you went to Bible college? You went to seminary? You don't just listen to podcasts like you're the podcast preacher? You point people to the kingdom and to the king, but you, you don't recognize the kingdom? You don't recognize me as your king? Like, I don't... You've preached sermons from Ezekiel. The problem, though, isn't with his understanding. And guys, here's another way we relate to Nicodemus. The problem is with his receiving and his believing. Look at this. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we, Jesus is talking about himself, I speak of what I know and I bear witness to what I have seen, but you don't receive what I have to say to you. I've told you earthly things. You don't even believe the things I'm talking about, about like flesh and blood stuff here. How are you going to believe what I tell you about heavenly things, salvation? Guys, we're just like Nicodemus in this way. Sometimes we kind of excuse our unbelief as, well, I don't really understand it. Or the Bible, like it's really up here and it speaks in these weird kind of, no. Jesus is clear about the things he needs to be clear about. The problem is that we don't understand. The gospel is complex in its beauty but it is simple enough for a three and a four-year-old to grasp and see the beauty of jesus the gospel is not for the intellectually elite the gospel is for all of us and so when we reject jesus as king when we don't see the kingdom when we hide in the darkness the problem is not that we don't understand the problem is that we do not receive and we do not believe so he's telling nicodemus and then he says, Nicodemus, listen, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's speaking about himself again. And he's saying, look, I was there and I've descended to make all of this clear to you. Because in your rebellion, you don't see, you don't believe. So I'm here to gently show you these things out of kindness so you can be adopted into the family. But that's not the only reason I've descended. I have descended, look at this, and then he says, he points to verse, or in 14, he points to Moses, and he says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, a couple weeks ago, when my family and I were in America, Jason Rochester preached a sermon about that very thing. Do you remember? The, the serpents, and what happened? God's people were in the wilderness, and again, complaining about his provision, we're not just like Nicodemus. We're like all of God's people, right? Here we are in the wilderness of Okinawa. God's giving us all these good things. He's kind. He's faithful. He's with us. But God, I don't like this. I don't like that. And I don't feel you here, right? We're just like him. And so in the same way that Okinawa has habus, God sent what he calls fiery serpents among his people as a form of judgment. But then in his kindness, he gave them a way of escape. And he told Moses, I want you to build kind of a bronze staff with a bronze snake, and I want you to lift it up, and whoever looks at that in faith, believing that I am a merciful God, will be forgiven and will find mercy. 
And so Jesus is pointing to this as a reminder that He descended to be lifted up so that rebels who had descended down in rebellion and in the pursuit of trying to find life apart from Jesus had only found death and darkness and destruction. Jesus descends from heaven into our hell so that those of us who had descended away from the Father in rebellion into a hellish rebellion could receive life at the expense of Jesus' death on our behalf. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus descended to give his life, his life, so that those of us who died could have a life of our own in him. Jesus is the descending one, the rescuing king. And he says to Nicodemus, what does Nicodemus have to do to receive this life? Simply believe. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, may have eternal life. Now, quick note about eternal life. Um, especially growing up in a church environment, I wasn't really interested in eternal life. To be honest with you, I was kind of put off by eternal life because it sounded really long and forever, like a school day or like a series of school days strung together. I mean, what boy wants to be anywhere forever? And this picture of heaven was like clouds and harps. And like, who, who wants that, right? Um, so first of all, there's a lot of stuff that we need to deconstruct. I know that's a buzzword nowadays, but it's okay. There's a lot of stuff that we need to deconstruct about our perceptions of what eternal life is in terms of duration of time and where that time will be spent and what will be, guys, it's going to be beautiful. You will not be bored. You, you, boredom is not even a word that you will know. But, but, but we got to pivot away from that. When Jesus talks about eternal life, his focus is not on time. It's, on, it's not on quantity, it's on quality of life, okay? Eternal life is a, is, and let me just show you. Um, you can have eternal life right now. That's the other misperception as Christians. You're like, eternal life is something I have when I die. But that's not true. Look at John 17, 3, and this is the last place I'll turn. I don't want to yank you all over the New Testament. It's on the screens. Jesus says, and this is eternal life. Wow, sounds like a clear definition is about to come our way, right? that they know you, not about you or of you, but know you personally, the only true God, so we know our Father as Father, and we know Jesus Christ as our rescuing King, whom the Father has sent. That's eternal life, right? It's quality, not quantity. So in other words, in my rebellion, the quantity of my time is one-dimensional. When I enter into eternal life, it's like I leave a one-dimensional world and I enter into the beauty of four dimensions. Back in like Binghamton, New York, we used to go to this $2 movie theater. You couldn't even make it through the movie without the movie shutting off four or five times and being off for 20 minutes while they rewound the reel or whatever they did. Like It was a dive and it was dirty and cockroaches and all the things. Like It was nasty. This summer, we went to a Legoland, and we went to a 4D movie experience. The images are there, wind is rushing around us, water is pouring down on us, the seats are moving. It felt like rats ran under our feet, but it was like all the little, it was a four-dimensional experience. Guys, the kingdom of God is beautiful. It's captivating. It's life-giving. It's hope-inspiring. It's awe-inspiring. In a rebellion, we can't see it, and we don't know it exists, so we see injustice and we despair. We experience injustice, and there's no hope of restoration or reconciliation. We uh, pursue life in a million different places away from God, and they all end in death. 
There's no life. There's no real purpose. There's no real peace. And you just exchange one God after another in your career, in your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your spouse, your, your orders, on and on and on. We're looking for what we can only find in Jesus as our Creator in a million different people, places, and things. It's one-dimensional. Then we enter the kingdom of God and it's beautiful. Justice is gradually replaced with, or injustice replaced in exchange for justice. Brokenness for beauty. Ashes for restoration. All the things. It is beautiful. And Jesus says, to know me is to know eternal life. That's really good news for us, guys. How kind is God that he would come rescue us, rebels, and then give us gradually give us the experiences of living in the kingdom now and not making us wait until death. That is beautiful and hope-giving. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life now. So we've seen the delivering work of the Spirit. We've seen the descending work of the Son. And guys, this is really good news for you because just, let's just pause. What is the depth of your descent in your rebellion from God? Like, just think for a moment. What is the lowest point you've ever gotten to? Lowest point. Have you ever shared the lowest point with anybody else? What if you knew our lowest points were going to scroll on the screen in three minutes if you were still in the room 180 seconds from now? How many of us? But it wouldn't scroll if you left the room. How many of us would still be seated here 181 seconds from now? I'd be gone. There's stuff about me you don't want to know. And I'd like to tell you that all that stuff is in the very distant past. But there's stuff in my heart and in my head that is dark and disturbing. My low points are low, guys. Nicodemus' low point was really low. Guys, God in His kindness, as a gentle father, saying, son, daughter, your low point is so low. Here's the good news of the Gospel. Jesus is the descending one who descended to a lower point than yours so that he could get below your low point, go to your hell, and lift you up so that you could have life through his death. Guys, the good news of the gospel is you can't descend to a point lower than what Jesus, our rescuing king, will descend to. You can't outrun the clouds, and you can't descend any deeper than Jesus, your rescuing king, will. So two good news, two good pieces of the gospel in the Spirit and the Son. And now we have our drawing Father. Now here's the verse that everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, you know this verse because it was in Tim Tebow's eye black or fill in the blank, right? Hey, and listen, Tim Tebow, for all you Southerners in the room, you get a little squishy with the gospel sometimes down south. Even Tim's rebellion was so deep that he needed the full force of the Trinity to come to bear on his life to perform his rescue. Even Tim Tebow. Okay? There's hope for all of us. But here it is. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes... Look at this. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But look, look, look. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Like we're already in a condemned state in our rebellion, right? Like that's clear. Why? Because we have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We don't see the kingdom and we don't see the kingdom's king, right? 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness. Notice the contrast. The father loves something and these rebel kids love something. Okay, we'll come back to that. We love, we love the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. You can paraphrase that and say every one of us would walk out of here in the 179th second. That's all he's saying right there. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the work of our drawing Father, the Father shines a warm and life-giving light into our darkness to bring us to light. The Spirit delivers, the Son descends, the Father draws through His light. Now notice there are three key verbs in this passage that kind of move the story along. The Father loves, the Father gives, and the Father saves, right? And those verbs correspond to our rebellion too. So here we go. In our rebellion, John says, we loved the darkness more than we loved our dad. But our Father loves His rebelling kids who love the darkness more than they love their own dad, so much so that He would actually send for our rescue. Just let that sink in. You loved or love the darkness your rebellion more than you love your own creating dad. And in most cases, a normal dad would walk away. God the Father is not a normal dad. He's the perfect father, and he loves his rebel kids who love the darkness and love him even more still. <clears throat> we love the darkness, and now the father, the father gives. In our rebellion, we gave. We gave ourselves over to anyone and anything we wanted to find life and we got death. The father gives his son over to one thing, his death, so that we can have life. See the contrast here in the, the loving, and the giving, now in the saving. Here's where we're like Nicodemus. We have spent a lifetime saving face like Nicodemus was doing when he went to Jesus in the dark. Some of us cloaked our rebellion in religion. It was low-key rebellion. We were really religious. Others of you, um, you, you just kind of guarded your reputation by totally rejecting the framework of a God and just embracing a relative truth and doing you. Either way, we have spent a lifetime saving face. And while we have been spending a lifetime in rebellion saving face, the Father in love has been pursuing to save rebels who save face. We're too busy, but yet the Father's love compels Him to, to pursue us and to rescue us in. So we love darkness. The Father loves rebels who love darkness. We give ourselves over. Jesus, the Father gives Jesus over for our good. And we're busy saving face. I'm not the rebel you say I am. And the Father says, dog, yeah, you are. Now watch this. I'm going to pursue and rescue you out. The Father draws us through our light. He shines the light on our darkness and He draws kids in. Guys, do you know what? The surest pathway to restoration and reconciliation and wholeness in your soul. You know what it is? Bringing all of your deeds done in the dark into the light. No more secrets. No more guilt. No more shame. Can we just acknowledge, like Nicodemus, you have a secret. I have secrets. My soul can be consumed with guilt and shame. The longer you hold those secrets, the longer you hide in the dark, the more you will despair and the more you will turn to substitute gods and the downward spiral of rebellion continues. You will be consumed by your guilt and shame. You know what the pathway to life is? Bringing it all into the light that the Father kindly shines out. 
He shines that light for our good, not for our shame. We're already living in shame. And guys, some of us have a really hard time thinking about sharing some of that stuff with other people, but let this be your posture. Does the Father know the depth of your darkness? Yes. Does He know everything you have ever thought or done in secret? Yes. In Christ, are you fully accepted by the Father? Yes. Are you perfectly loved? Yes. Are you forever kept? Yes. So the one who knows the most ugly things about you is the very one who's most committed and most loving toward you and will always keep you. That should give us profound freedom now to bring everything into the light. Because I'm not at risk of being rejected. I'm not at risk of being forgotten. I'm not at risk of being marginalized. My Father loves me. And when He shines the light, it is for my good and for His fame. Guys, some of us relationally just need the Father's light to shine. Some of you need to have some real conversations. It will be the most painful route at first, but it will be the most life-giving as you allow the light of our Father to bring all of your hidden secrets into the light so that you can live. So we have a delivering spirit. We have a descending son. We have a drawing father. Let's bring it all together now. How do we apply this? What's, what's the takeaway for us? Guys, as a young Christian, probably from the age of 7 to 27, I was consumed by fear. You know what I was fearful about? The prayers that I prayed to my father were not sincere enough. Maybe my prayer was sincere, but then on the next day I went and descended into my rebellion again. Maybe I risked the Father's happiness with me. So from 7 to 27-ish, I had a daily torment that I hadn't done enough to be accepted by the Father or that I had done something that would get me kicked out of the family. But guys, what's the beauty of the Gospel here, right? The Spirit delivers. Can you outrun the wind of the Spirit blowing through the trees? You can't. He's done the work. There's not something that you have to do. Can you descend to a lower depth in your rebellion than the descending sun to lift you up? No, you cannot. Can you love the darkness more than the Father loves His rebel kids who love the darkness? No, you cannot. The entire weight of your rescue and redemption is carried on the shoulders of our Trinitarian God. The Father is 100% in, the Son is 100% in, and the Spirit is 100% in to accomplish or perform our rescue. So the only way to eradicate the fears and doubts that are so deep in my heart is to reject the belief that there is something I need to do to get into the family or to stay in the family and to receive the very thing that Nicodemus was not doing, the good news of the gospel that our Trinitarian God has done it all. And when he does it all, he forever keeps his kids. No more fear, no more guilt, no more shame. Freedom. The Father loves you. You've been accepted and you're forever kept. Back to LAX. The lady behind the desk looks at me in the eye. 40 minutes had gone by. The people in Philly had sent a substitute form to get us on the plane. They checked the right box, but this time they left off the signature. It was insanity. And she looked at me and she said, I don't care anymore. I have turned so many people away from these gates and I'm so sick of this policy. I don't know what they're going to do with you in Tokyo, but if you were me, I would want somebody to put me on the plane. So I'm 
putting your family on the plane. I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right, sweet. So she put her family on the plane, but she's like, I want you to wait. And then they closed the gates. I'm like, wait, 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 don't do that. Like the whole TSA thing, like I still need to, I still need to get on there. But they closed the gates because I was waiting for that fax from Philly. Well, fax from Philly doesn't come in. It's go time. They're radioing up from the plane. She's like, all right, dog, we just got to put you on the plane. So they open the gate. They walk me down. They sit me down and we take off. So we're on this plane that we have no business being on, none. We're completely at the mercy of these people. But still there's this fear that when we land, they're just going to turn us right back around and send us back to L.A. We land, the door opens, but the light hasn't dinged yet because we can't get up. And there's this woman walking down the aisle, not one of the flight attendants, but just a different woman in a jail uniform. She walks right up to me. She's got a piece of paper. She hands it to me. She's like, sir, here's your corrected form from Philadelphia. You're free to go through customs and immigration now. You won't have a single problem. I'm like, mind blown. And I said, see, this is why I love Japan. This would never happen in America, ever, ever. Guys, we had no business being on the plane. We had no business being legally allowed back into Japan. Can I just say something? You have no business being in the kingdom. You don't belong there. Your rebellion is deep. You have no legal way to get back into the Father's family. You're a rebel kid. But in love, the Father says, I'm adopting you in. And I will do everything necessary to get you into the family. The work is done, son. It is for you to sit back and rest and just be full of joy. And guys, for those of you not yet in the family, I know you've been flooded with religious jargon your whole life. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. No, lies, lies, lies. You can't do enough. So Jesus did it for you. It is for you to receive and believe the good news that Jesus is your rescuing king. You've rebelled. The strong wind of the Spirit blows further still. You've descended deep. The descending sun descends further still. The light of the Father is brighter than your darkest day. You saw the big idea. Here's one more matching statement to go with it, just to help drive this home. We saw that my rebellion is so deep, it takes the full force of the Trinity to perform my rescue. But the good news of the gospel is this, guys. My God's love is deeper. There is no force. There is no threat that can prevent my rescue. The full weight of the Trinity in love is brought to bear for your good. Grant's going to come now and lead us in a moment of response. We'll pray, we'll share communion together, and uh, we'll sing together. Family, let's just be a glad family today. There's no to-do list in this sermon. It is, for ours, it is for us to rest and thank the Father for His kindness to us. Let's do that. Thank you.